Okay, I know your show's about personal brands, but I like literally upchuck when people say my my brand. I love you so much. I literally feel cringeroony because there were a couple people when I was younger who were always talking about their brands and I was like, "Who do you think you are?" Welcome to Lead with Your Brand, the podcast that explores exceptional career success stories, inspiring and insightful personal brand journeys that answer the question, are you coffee or are you Starbucks? Fascinating conversations with leaders about their career breakthroughs from entertainment, tech, media, and more. You'll learn how they've turned up the volume on their brand to unlock success. Firsthand, uncensored, and real, as told by people who've been there and plenty of inspiration and practical tools to help you lead with your brand every day as you drive towards your next career breakthrough. And now, here's your host, personal branding expert, diversity advocate, and keynote speaker, Jason Patria. Hey everyone, Jason Patria here, and you are listening to the Lead With Your Brand podcast, which is the podcast to help people exactly like you turn up the volume, show their value, and lead with your brand towards your next career breakthrough. Now, you know that it is March, and so many women have changed both my career and my life. So in celebration of Women's History Month, I'm showcasing some of my favorite Favorite voices who just happen to be female from the Lead With Your Brand podcast. Now, these are women who continue to share their wisdom and move not only their industries forward, but the world. So make sure you check out leadwithyourbrand.com backslash women to hear from these amazing leaders. In fact, you can hear from my bud, Jackie Hernandez, who's the CEO of New Majority Ready, who really changed my life as a great marketer, helping me understand all about brand marketing. You can also hear from Dr. Lois Frankel, who is the best-selling author of books including Nice Girls, Don't Get the Corner Office, and hear from Gabrielle Gambrell, who is an amazing communications expert and was the youngest head of communications at Barnard College at Columbia University. And every single Tuesday in March, we will be featuring another amazing leader who happens to be a woman. And today, I'm excited to welcome the awesome New York Times bestselling author, Jill Kargman, to the show. But before Jill comes up, I want to share a little bit more about one woman who really changed my life. Now, I grew up in Pasadena, California, which is home to the Rose Parade and the Rose Bowl. And of course, that's a big part of my identity in terms of being a big, crazy showman and branding, which is what the Rose Parade was really all about. And I actually went to the same college prep school called Polytechnic School in Pasadena from first to 12th grade. And starting in third grade, I had this amazing drama teacher, and her name is Tina Cocomelli. Now, I just adored her from my very first play that was Clever Maria and the Czar, and I got to play the Czar in that. And she directed me and coached me in acting all the way until my senior year when I played Bud Frump in the music. How to Succeed in Business Without Trying. Now, one of the things that I loved about Tina as 
as an acting coach was that she really pressed me to find the authenticity in characters I was playing. Now, I remember when I was doing Bud Frump and How to Succeed, we were in a rehearsal and I remember Tina being furious with me. And I I was getting tons of laughs from everyone that was watching the rehearsal, but I remember her coming up onto stage with me and I was standing in a big prop doorway. It was the act one finale. And she said, what are you doing? You are just going for the cheap laugh. You are, you're not being authentic to who this character is, and you're not even being authentic to who you are. And it was a moment that I realized that I was using that character to really mask who I really was. I was using that character to go for some really quick and easy laughs because it was harder to really represent what the truth was, the truth and the intensity and bringing that out. Well, I tweaked that character performance and it certainly, certainly helped. But the biggest thing is that it helped me think about how to be authentic. Now, Tina was also my cheerleading coach, and I was a, a varsity cheerleader, of course, the only boy varsity boy cheerleader in Pasadena and certainly at Polytechnic School. But she also helped me on a personal level really realize how I could bring my authentic self and more importantly, my best authentic self, because she really helped me understand that if I was going to be on the platform, if I was going to be in front of a crowd of people, if I was going to lead our team, if I was going to lead our crowd of all of our fans, I had to not only be who I was, I had to turn up the volume. I had to be bigger than what I was so that I could read to that crowd. And, you know, ultimately, that's what I think the lead with your brand system is all about. You want to be the authentic you that you are, but you want to turn up the volume based on the context. It needs to read. So if you're presenting in front of a room, you've got to turn up the volume but not be somebody different than you are. When you're sitting on Zoom and Microsoft Teams all day and people can only see you through the camera, you've got to be yourself, but your best authentic self with the volume turned up. And you know, people always ask me about having one brand at work and another in their personal life. And to me, when we think of the lead with your brand system, just like any great consumer brand out there, you really have to have one brand but a brand that shows up correctly in different contexts. So if you're struggling with that, I want you to simply ask yourself, you know, what is your brand as a parent? What is your brand as a spouse? What is your brand as a friend? What would people say about you? Then I want you to think about the authenticity of those elements that people close to you see, and then turn up the volume and flip them into the best you at work. If you are the most organized mom out there that has everything scheduled to a T, that coordinates logistics, that has your kids dressed and their rooms all set up, well, guess what? I think that's your brand at work because you're probably super organized and amazing too. If you are a loyal friend that's a confidant and a great listener with your with your besties there, 
Guess what? I think that's the same thing that you do at work with your clients, that you're a trusted advisor, that your clients think of you as a confidant. So don't think about creating two worlds. I want you to think about what is that best authentic you that reads in different contexts. Well, I am super excited about today's guest. It is Jill Kargman, who is a born and bred New Yorker and a New York Times bestselling author of 12 books, including most recently, Sprinkle Glitter on My Grave. She's also the creator and star of the comedy Odd Mom Out, which is on Peacock, which was based on her bestselling book, Momzilla's, in which Jill plays a satirical version of herself navigating the the hilarity of raising children on the Upper East Side in New York City. Now, her articles have appeared in Vogue, Teen Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, Town and Country, Travel and Leisure, LL Decor, and more. And you've probably also heard her on SiriusXM and as a correspondent on The Drew Barrymore Show. We'll be back with Jill Kargman in just a few moments. For over 25 years, Jason has coached, trained, and developed thousands of leaders and executives, helping them achieve their next career breakthrough. He's a featured speaker at global conferences and companies to help everyone bring their best authentic self to work, show their value, and lead with their brand every day. Get more tips and tools at leadwithyourbrand.com. All right. I am super excited for today's guest. It is New York Times bestselling author and the star of Odd Mom Out on Peacock, Jill Kargman. Jill, what's going on? Hi, I'm so happy to talk to you. I'm so thrilled to talk to you because I'm also via you getting my New York fix because it has been a year since I've been on a plane and been to the Big Apple. So I know when I miss LA, I typically go five or six times a year. It's it's been hard not traveling. I realized how insatiable I am with exploration and, you know, I'm couch surfing. I'm watching a lot of Netflix and period dramas and traveling the world that way, but it's not the same. I know it's not the same. Well, we are here to talk all about leading with your brand to your next career breakthrough. So Jill, I know that when you walk down the street, people probably recognize you from TV or or from a a book jacket. But when you're like at a cocktail party pre-COVID time and and you meet new people, how do you introduce yourself? How do you tell people who you are and what you do? Well, first of all, I very few people will come up to me. I would say in New York more, sometimes, you know, in other places. But I, as a middle-aged woman, you're definitely kind of invisible. It's not like, oh, you're a starlet. You know, I, I'm like on a canceled basic cable TV show and I'm 46. <laughs> like, that's not exactly like begging for selfies. But I feel like I have such a good balance of like a, the right level ex- of exposure. Cause usually when people stop me, they're really cool. And they're people I would probably be friends with. I don't, I'm not like a freak magnet, which is great. Whereas I feel like people who are famous and really get stopped, they, it impedes their lifestyle. I just get like a free dessert once in a while. If I meet somebody new and they say, what do you do? I, I well, I live on the Upper East Side. So most people just assume you're a stay at home mom. If a man asks, which they rarely do, um, and I don't care. Like I just just keep asking about their finance life in Wall Street world. And then, you know, if they ever say, and what do you do? Which again is rare. I say I'm a writer. 
And then they'll say, what do you write? And I say, oh, books. And I had a TV show. And then that, that they might be interested. They might not be interested, but I really don't like get defensive about it. Cause I have my own life and I don't, really get it. <laughs> but um, it's funny. I, I definitely feel like being 46, you just don't care. Like I'm not thirsty at all. I don't, you know, I feel like when you're younger, especially as a feminist, you feel like, Oh, all the men are talking about careers and no one asks you anything. They just assume you're there as a plus one of your husband. And now I really, I just don't care. I just sit there and like, you know, have my champagne and try to get through the party. So what is new and exciting in the world of Jill Cardman? Nothing much. I'm writing a play, which is going to take like two years. So I'm just starting the process. It's with the producers of the prom and they're, which I love, especially the Broadway version. Yes. They produced the Broadway version and they had reached out and were just, it's like so nascent right now. Um, And then I want to pitch another TV show, but not at the moment. My understanding is like, it's kind of a tricky time and I want the dust to settle and, you know, the producers of that were just like putting, putting a pin in it for now. And I'm just trying to like spend time with my kids. I feel like for so many years, I was so busy and running around and I felt like I would do anything to just lie in bed for a year. (laughs) I feel so guilty because my wish came true. So I'm actually not complaining. I'm complaining that people are dying and that's horrible. But personally, I feel like I'm, I'm not that stressed. Once in a while, I get stressed like, oh gosh, I... I miss working and being busy, but I, I know I will be again. And I'll, there'll probably be a moment where my alarm clock goes off and I miss lounging around. So I'm trying to <laughs> relish it and absorb it, spending a lot of time on skincare. Exactly. Now, Jill, I wanted to talk to you because you have had this amazing career as an author, and then you've become an executive producer and an actress playing sort of a supersized version of yourself. When you think back what were some of those big career breakthrough moments that really defined who you are? I think working at Interview Magazine out of college, I wasn't that happy there. I'm going to be honest, like those were two really hard years of my life, but they gave me so much more freedom than I would have had, say at Vogue. I I was writing for, I actually wrote a piece for Vogue while I was in college and there was an assistant job opening there. And I I felt like Vogue had more resume value, but I wound up taking the interview job only because I knew that the younger editors got to write. So I had bylines very young, whereas yeah. if I had gone to Condé Nast or Hearst um, at the assistant level, it's really like you're fetching coffee. I mean, I was doing that too, but they also let me write. So I had like 200 articles by my, you know, by my 22nd, 23rd birthday, whereas I would have been like, booking Cameron Diaz's dog walkers travel. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. it's, you're you're just it's very clerical at most magazines. So I felt like even though I was still it was still that like Devil Wars Prada feeling that I had in my stomach, <laughs> I got a lot more creative outlets than any other place. So that was the first. I think the second was I wrote a movie called Intern on spec, not the intern with Robert De Niro and Anne Hathaway, but an <laughs> called, called Intern. And I didn't actually like the way it turned out, but it got me my agent. So, wow. um, you know, as a writer, I realized you're like the lowest amoeba pond scum on the New Jersey shoreline. And <laughs> I just felt 
you know, I went to Sundance and I saw the movie and was like, oh, this isn't what I pictured. Um, but I don't know anything about being a director. I've never directed. I don't really even aspire to direct. In fact, I don't, I definitely don't want to direct anything ever, but I, it just wasn't, uh, it just, I could vomit. It wasn't what I thought. And it was kind of somebody else's vision, I guess. So, but silver linings, I got an agent who, you know, encouraged us. I had a writing partner at the time to do another spec script. And when she read it, she said, you know, I have good news and bad news. The good news is I laughed my ass off. And I was like, what's the bad news? And she goes, the bad news is it's too esoteric a milieu. This is very New York and Betty Bowling Alley, her words, not mine. Betty Bowling Alley in Duluth can't relate to the coasts, but you know, everything between Hollywood Bowl and Zabars. And I was like, I don't agree with that. Look at Sex in the City. Look at the Nanny Diaries. And she's like, well, those were books first. So they had a built-in following and it's apples and oranges. You really can't compare. So we wound up writing it as a book, which was called The Right Address. Mm -hmm. And it was my first novel. And then that kind of set me on a path of just writing novels. I mean, all of them sold to be movies and none of them got made. I like got champagne after the first one sold. And then I never did again because I realized <laughs> they buy all these books. I'm sharing my like check with my writing partner that was like $1,000 each. And we're like, woo, it's going to be a movie. And then nothing, crickets. So that actually suited me though, because at that time I'd gotten pregnant Sorry, that sounded like I just was knocked up. No, my husband and I had a child. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Bang away. Um, no, we had a baby and I really couldn't have been working on a show or a movie anyway. Like I was so locked down in my apartment. It was a very intense few years. I had three kids in four years. And writing books was like a, a mental escape for me. I had like two hours or three hours to myself. I had a babysitter from one to four and I would just Monday to Friday and I would go and write and shower and do everything I had to do. <laughs> that was 12 books ago. But I, I have to say, Jason, like then when my kids got older and went to school, I now have three teenagers. It was really lonely and I mm -hmm. missed kind of the, what your needs as a mom change. Like first yeah. you feel like you're never alone and everyone's pawing you and that was my sanity was writing the books. Then I felt like after I did Odd Mom Out with a writer's room and a set and it was crackling with people and, you know, just such energy, I I miss that. Now I feel like when I'm alone with my computer, it's lonely. It's not the respite that it once was. So I, I don't want to write books anymore. I feel like that suited that phase of my life. I would love to write for TV again. And then I'm a correspondent on the Drew Barrymore show on CBS, which is of sort of course. serving that need. Cause when I go in to the studio, there's, you know, right now it's a skeleton crew because of COVID, but it's so much fun energy and people and being on a set again. So I'm scratching that itch with that job and I love it so much, but I look forward to this chapter being over and maybe even doing some acting. I, I, I feel like I would definitely want to do that again, even if I didn't write it, if it was something funny and fun. Some of the things that came along sent my way are like a bitchy mom in yoga pants. And like, I have, I don't really have interest in that. But <laughs> if it was something funny or creepy or something that I felt like was my sensibility, I would, I would die to do something fun. Absolutely. And, and so tell me a little bit about Odd Mom Out, because of course it's based on your best selling book, Momzilla's. But 
most authors aren't necessarily able to pivot into being an executive producer of a show, much less the lead actress in it. So, so what was that arc like for you? Well, what happened was, and this is important for anybody who's listening who feels like they're in a rut. I had a book called Sometimes I Feel Like a Nut. That was an essay collection. It did really well. It was number three in its category, which was weird. It was like miscellaneous <laughs> books, but because it has no category really, but um, <laughs> it did really well. So I was like, okay, I want to write another one. And, and um, Random House said, no, sorry, it didn't sell as well as your novels. And I said, what do you mean? It was like number three on the New York Times, Wall Street Journal. And they're like, yeah, you actually like didn't make us that much money compared to your fiction. So I basically said, you know, the way actors say, like, what if we do one for you, one for me? I'll write a novel, but then can I write an essay collection? And they were like, still no. Oh, no. Yeah. So a friend of mine who's a producer said, would you want to come to Ogilvy and help us writing copy, like writing commercials? So I was writing like Tampax commercials. Like literally I wrote like (laughs) boys. Like if you, if you laugh and you pee a little bit in your pants, that was me. I was writing those. So, So if you're listening and you feel like you're doing something worthless, it's not worthless because I met with clients and I met with all these people and the producers, Tim and Daniel were like, I was spending more time with them. I knew them socially kind of, but then I was in the office with them and doing meetings with them. And we really connected and bonded and actually became friends and had a lot of like really fun lunches. All those things that you don't think could possibly help your career. We're just like laughing in a cafeteria and they're like, you know, you're funny. Like you should be on TV. Would you ever want to be acting? And I said, you know, I was always an actress in college, but I never thought that I would, no one looks like me. I just thought you would be like blonde tits on a stick and like blow casting directors. I didn't think that that was a life for myself. I know you have to really need it and I wanted it, but I didn't need it. You have to Mm -hmm. need it in your soul. What I needed was a job. I needed to be working and I wasn't willing to like cobble together an income the way that actors have to do. I just figured like, I love writing. I'm going to be a writer. And I went right into magazines and then into writing books. So I kind of abandoned, I never even tried really the actress thing. So years later, when I was working with Daniel and Tim, um, their company is called Pyro. They, they produce all these commercials at Ogilvy, really big budget commercials. And they had said, you know, we want to develop a TV show with you to act in as kind of like a version of yourself. And we could take your book, Momzilla's, which Daniel's wife had read, and she had been an agent in her prior life. And so they really developed it with me. I mean, I couldn't have done it without them. And then when we met with Andy Cohen, he had sort of was interested if if I was open to being in a reality show and being on camera that way. And I said, Mm. you know, I'm just not a reality person. You're not a real housewife. I couldn't. I mean, I made that like crystal right away. So he knew that. But Andy was so supportive. And he introduced us to Laura Spots, who was the head of production at Bravo at the time. Love her. So I really developed it with her and with, with the guys too. But so many people say to me, why didn't you pitch to HBO? Why didn't you pitch to like, why Bravo? That's so random. And I said, Bravo, it was like they developed it alongside me. It was from the ground up at Bravo. So I really don't think that any other network would have given me that chance and that power. It was because they were already putting their foot in the water to try to explore doing scripted and the right project kind of came in and they wanted 
Larry David on the Upper, Upper East Side in mom world. So that was sort of what I gave them. And it, I really, the irony is that it, I came back to my essay collection in that the two books I dropped off to Andy Cohen were Momzilla's and Sometimes I Feel Like a Nut. And I said, I want this show to be a blender. I want it to be both those books in a smoothie form where you have that world of Momzilla's, but you also have the quirkiness of looking at it in the fish out of water prism. So that's what we did. It was really fun. And they gave me an inordinate amount of control. They gave so few comments and just positive feedback. And I just felt like while nobody was looking, I got to make 30 episodes of television that I love. Yeah. Like we got away with so much that you would never get away with A lot. I was watching over the weekend again on Peacock and I was the episode with you helping Abby Elliott's character give birth. Oh yeah. In the home. I was like, this is out of control. It's so weird because New York people say, you know, of course there's so many stereotypes about New York, but what people don't understand is that there's so many different New Yorks. There's the the stereotypes within New York, but that episode followed the Brooklyn episode where you had where you drank placenta, right? Now right. was so that, that based happened. on a real thing? Yeah, not only is it based on a real thing, our director of that ep- episode, Tamara Davis, who I'm obsessed with, we were all like making fun of people who drink their placenta and she's like, "I drank my placenta." <laughs> They actually put it there. There's like companies that will freeze dry it and put it in capsules. You're not actually like eating an organ like Khaleesi with the heart horse. It's more <laughs> like whatever in normal capsule form, but it just felt weird to me. But I'm from the Upper East Side. So the kind of Brooklyn y, like I'm going to give birth in a bathtub ethos is very pervasive here, <laughs> especially with these millennials. I mean, they out a baby at home. Which for me, I'm like, what? This is a little house in the prairie. Like they did that because the hospital is like a horse and carriage ride for two days. And Doc Baker, right? Like I don't understand that at all. But I have a really good friend who did it. She passed out from the pain. She blacked out. She woke up in a hospital, but she lost so much blood. She was hemorrhaging, but she was like, it was beautiful. And I had candles lit and it was whatever until she blacked out, but she loved it. (laughs) That's just not me. But so I wanted to kind of, explore the dichotomy between the Upper East Side moms who only have scheduled C-sections and their nails done and a blowout and a photographer to capture the experience. And then these people who are breastfeeding (laughs) five-year-olds. Like there's two (laughs) opposite ends of the spectrum, both in the same city. And so I love that you sort of talk about these great New York archetypes, right? Or these the, these these avatars. So let me ask you, Jill, how would you describe your brand? Okay, I know your show's about personal brands, but I like literally upchuck when people say my <laughs> my brand. I love you so much. I just I I literally feel cringeroony because this there were a couple people when I was younger who were always talking about their brands. And I was like, who do you think you are? But (laughs) I don't know. I have no answers. I think I'm a bully base of many different things, which I guess is not succinct and bad marketing for your brand. But whenever people say like mom writer or mom lit mom, whatever, I kind of cringe because that's so not my identity. I know I wrote a book called Momzilla's and a show called Odd Mom Out, and I live for my kids. But I don't. I feel like I didn't really want to make a career just being like I, you know, birthed people. 
Like I'm the first person to ever spread my legs and like have spawn. I don't know. I I think I have like dark humor and I'm an amalgam of different things. I, I definitely don't mind being associated with New York and having that be a big sort of tentpole of my finger quote brand. Because I do feel like I'm inextricable from my city. I don't know how to drive. I don't function outside the city. It's like my lung. <laughs> I do love travel though, and I love LA. But I'm not like the the New York archetype who's on LA. I love LA. But you know, I just I don't know. I've always been wary of it because it feels for me. I guess I'm older than you, but it fit. I feel like I grew up in a bless time. your heart, Jill. No, I I feel like I grew up in a time where it would feel self-promoting to say I have a brand. But if you think I have one, I'll take it. You can uh, but you, d- you definitely have a style, right? Because even when you talk about New York, I remember the first time I met you, right? Because you and Harry were, uh, were helping out and participating in the LGBTQ Pride Parade in New York, right? With yeah. NBC Universal. And so we, we were marching. NBC floor. I know, right? And I remember saying to myself, wow, Jill is quintessentially New York. Tell me a little bit about your voice as an author and a storyteller. How would you, what are three words that d- would describe your your voice as a storyteller? I would say dark, <laughs> <laughs> eccentric, and I guess outlandish. I think a lot of the stories that have that have happened to me, I tell them and people don't they think it can't be real? And some of the weirdest parts in Odd Mom Out come from reality, actually. And mm-hmm. there were moments where when we would get notes and stuff, people would say, like, this is too much. And I, I, I was like, no, that happened. That, that, You're like, that, that to me, happened. Straight up happened. I mean, I do. I It's weird. I, I know I, I said I don't have freaks, like, in terms of fans. But I do have freaks in life. Like, through my life, I've always been a five foot seven strip of flypaper for weird people. And I do have strange encounters. I've always had that. I don't know why. I think it's because I'm like a bartender and people tell me their stories all the time. So I absorb them like a sponge and then I can bring it out in my show or my books. But it's, you know, since I was little, I just feel like people open up to me. Mm-hmm. I probably should have been a psychiatrist, but I don't think I would want the burden <laughs> of carrying people's <laughs> with me everywhere. But yeah, people always on a bus, wherever I am, people just open up. It's bizarre. And I have a daughter who's like that too, where people just like tell her their life story. Confession booth. I'm like a priest. And how do you consciously bring sort of that darkness and that eccentricity and that weirdness into your work? I think it's subconscious at this point. It's like breathing. I mean, I had a father who talked about death. He makes like Woody Allen look cheerful. Like he's a really (laughs) happy guy and he's so funny, but he would constantly talk about death and like who has stage four pancreatic and is on their way out. Or he would take the Concord to Paris for all of these things. And he's like, one of these days that pig's going to blow. I just know it. And it did, by the way, it crashed. I mean, like he always, he's a very morbid guy, but I actually think that that there are studies that being aware of mortality helps you lead a better life and a happier life because you know, you, you can't take it with you and you don't sweat the small stuff. My dad does not sweat the small stuff. That's what running a corporation did. That's what being super morbid did. And so it's just like infused in my life. I mean, I always feel like I turn on the lights and I turn on the music. Like I always feel like I strive every day to feel alive and 
there is like a, a joy that comes with being morbid. So when I start, <laughs> I don't mean like brooding and like goth in a basement miserable. I mean like, yeah, we're going to all f- die. So let's like enjoy everything while we can. It's more of, I'm definitely glass half empty, but it's still there. It's still water in there. So enjoy it. <laughs> so, I mean, Jill, one of the things that really strikes me about you is how authentic you are. You know, you you talk about not necessarily caring, you show up. I mean, even even in your books and when we watch Odd Mom out, right? That's really a, a whole element is is being your kind of who who you are and not compromising. How has that kind of evolved over time for you? That's a great question. Here's the trick about here's the little where it dupes everybody in Odd Mom Out. Odd Mom Out is based on me when I was 28 and I was a new mom. The truth is I'm 46. So of course I don't give a The reason I wanted to kind of harken back to having younger kids on the show is because there's a vulnerability that comes with youth. I know that you talked about not wanting to, loving being a mom, but not wanting to be defined by that. And that's something that I hear from women with kids all of the time in the workplace. What advice do you have for women in particular who find themselves in that pickle, right? Like how, how am I a mother as well as something else and not become defined by just being a mom? I think you have to keep your interests that are yours and, and hobbies and passions. So this is going to sound crazy because I'm obviously a Democrat and am for gun control, but I got it when I was younger, I got a gun, <laughs> I got a gun and I joined a gun club and I would go shooting I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but I just loved it. And it made me feel like I had something in control. And when I reeled in that, that target that was just, you know, eviscerated, I felt somehow badass. And I like would pretend I was a Russian James Bond villain or something. And I loved it. Whatever it is, I think motherhood can dilute you in a way that it doesn't dilute fathers. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's whoever's home with the kid. But I know my husband just like, I mean, Harry's the best guy and the best dad, but his life wasn't derailed in the same way that mine was. I mean, physically just carrying the baby, recovering from birth, that whole first year of sleepless nights because he had a more traditional job than I did. I was doing all the night feedings and, you know, I was just like a slug. I was so tired and I lost a little bit of myself, you know, and my hair, (laughs) you know, I like everything. You just fall apart a little bit physically. And I think you become a little bit diluted. So I had to work to get back to the balsamic reduction of myself, where I now feel like I am fully what I was and better before I had kids. Whereas like I had some years there in my 30s where I felt like I was that watered down version. It was very hard. Part of it comes from having your interests. Part of it comes from carving out time with your friends who hold the mirror to your truest self, particularly old friends, people that you have memories with, but that you can make new memories with. So you're not just like talking about the good old days. That stuff is all very important. And I hate saying date night, but date night, like slash weekend trips, stuff like that. Like it seems selfish, but it's actually for the good of the kids to have mommy and daddy have a weekend alone upstate and come back, I feel like you you just can't pour from an empty pitcher and mothers have to give themselves a break to refill it. Oh, I love that. Now, 
I know that you grew up around big business because your your dad was a former president of Chanel. What what yeah. did you what did, what did you learn from from watching your dad at dad and your parents in in sort of life that impacted you? Well, my dad wanted to be a stand-up comedian and his parents wouldn't let him. They they just shut it down. They were like you are not pursuing this. And so he went to Columbia Business School and then would sneak down to the village or up to the Catskills to do gigs. And he never became a stand-up comedian. He went right into business. But I think his humor was an asset every step of the way. And I think the owners of Chanel were so close with him. He was do- their account manager, um, Dwell Dane Burnback, the ad agency first. And they kind of brought him to run the company. I think, I mean, obviously his business acumen, he's an outstanding marketer and that's his background, but he's so funny. So I do think humor, as Norman Lear said the other night at the Golden Globes, I think it makes you live longer. I think it makes you happier if you're laughing through stuff. And I think my parents, both my parents, people always say, your dad is so funny and your mom's so pretty. And I'm like, my mom is even funnier. She's so witty. It's very dry and French. But they're so funny and they laugh a lot. Like our family laughs a lot. So I do feel like that's an asset in business. And everyone always says like, oh, Chanel and it's high fashion and chic and Karl Lagerfeld did your wedding dress and you're in Paris all the time. I was like, that's all great. But that was not what my childhood was about at all. Like we just had, we would go and do that. And then we would go on an adventure as a family and we just my dad always said, you know, when I would sit by the runway looking at all these models as a little girl, I started going to fashion shows at nine, nine and nine or 10. And my dad was like, they're too skinny. Nobody, no guy wants that. You know, of course that was kind of a lie, but <laughs> he was like, he's like, it's good to have some meat on your bones. And I think he knew that I it was going to totally mess with my head if I was staring at these women like, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be. But I, they always balanced it out and said about some of the fashion characters we would see, like, you know, this isn't real. You know, they are, these are not true friendships. They're allegiances and they're all going out to Dave and having champagne and being fabulous. But they're not the friends that you call at three in the morning crying. It's not real. It's artifice. And it was a really good precursor for me as a child to then turn to my kids with social media and say, this is a construct. This isn't them. It's the ambassador of them. This is a highly edited, filtered reality that is not real. And I think my kids benefited from my going through a fashion household so I could impart some lessons about the social media and looking at everybody's fabulous lives on Instagram. They know it's, they know it's a construct. So Jill, a couple of quick final questions for you. What is your favorite brand since we're talking about brands? I love Alexander McQueen's brand because of like all of that. It's beauty. It's, it's romance, romantic violence. You know, it's, it's like that Eros and Tanatos. It's sexy, but death. There's like a, a, this awareness. Sadly, also because the namesake designer is yeah. there with us, but he used skulls a lot in his work. And I, some of the scarves are so beautiful. You could frame them on your wall. Um, but I just love the brand. I love naughty and nice sugar and spice, leather and lace. I have a leather and lace motorcycle jacket from Alexander McQueen. It's just my favorite. It's such a great brand. Ooh, love Alexander McQueen. Now, I know that you're a quintessential New Yorker and you do not drive, but if you were a type of car, what type of car would Jill be? 
my car hasn't come out yet. I want to be, I guess I'd be like a black Tesla that's self-driving. Ooh. And why, why would you be that? Because I don't want to fuck up the earth. It, I can drink wine and then go home with my car just doing it. And I like <laughs> black is the only color for cars. <laughs> and everything and, else. <laughs> exactly. Um, and what is the best career and life advice that you'd like to pass on to our listeners? Better sorry than safe. I think if you play it safe, even though we're all told better safe than sorry, I think better sorry than safe. If safety doesn't mean like, oh, let's go bungee jumping. I just mean like speak up in that boardroom, take a risk, write that letter, ask a favor. You know, people are always so scared. And sometimes you have to just like sack up. The worst thing people can say is no. I love that. Well, Jill Cardman, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Jason. I could talk to you for hours. I know. I love talking to you. And I'll catch you on Odd Mom Out airing on Peacock, as well as the Drew Barrymore show on CBS. Thank you. Lots of love. Lots of love. And we'll be back in a few moments with my final thought. Are you tired of not being recognized for your work? Are you ready to rise above the rest and accelerate to the next level? The Lead With Your Brand Career Breakthrough Mentoring Program will help you take control of your career, develop your own unique brand, and catapult you to a whole new level of success. You are a top performer, and the Lead With Your Brand Career Breakthrough Mentoring Program is what you need to get you there. Visit leadwithyourbrand.com to learn how. Well, I don't know about you, but I could talk to Jill Kargman all day. She is so hilarious and she is so on brand. In fact, I love the fact that she she irks at the term personal brand, but she is so authentically herself and she is so defined in terms of her style and her thought process and what she brings to her career, and her life, and really the world. You know, one of those things that really stuck out for me was Jill's whole notion of taking risks and making strategic choices, all while being her best authentic self. You know, I loved that she brought up the thought process around choosing to work for Interview Magazine, even though she didn't necessarily love the the style and the brand of that magazine or the workplace versus going to work for Vogue, because she knew strategically that was going to give her more opportunity. And she was able to leverage that in a way that was being her best authentic self in writing stories that mattered to her. I even loved how she was able to flip that and work with her publisher to say, hey, I'm going to do something for you. And then I want to do something for me and really looking at how she could leverage that passion project with those elements that are commercial. And I think that that is something that we can all apply to ourselves. You see, in work, there are always projects that maybe aren't our passion project. But what you need to figure out is how do you take those assignments and bring your 100% best authentic self and brand to that project so that it gives you the leeway and it gives you the privilege of working on your passion projects following. 
Well, that's all the time we have for today's show. I've had a blast. And of course, we're celebrating Women's History Month. So make sure to check out Women on Brand by visiting leadwithyourbrand.com backslash women so that you can hear some of the amazing leaders who've been on our show who just happen to be women. Now, if you loved the show, go ahead and give us a rating. And of course, we'd love to hear some comments and follow me on social media at Jason Patria. And most importantly, just like Jill Cardman, don't be a boring commodity like coffee. Show up as your best authentic premium self, a super premium brand like Starbucks. You've been listening to Lead With Your Brand, the podcast that explores and uncovers exceptional career success stories and inspiring personal brand journeys with your host, personal branding expert, diversity advocate, and keynote speaker, Jason Patria. Remember to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit us at leadwithyourbrand.com.